be looking this morning at the marriage covenant at the heart of your household. I want to clarify something probably I should have said at the very beginning of this series, uh, that I, I do the work of a what's called a practical theologian. And what that means is I, I study and I look as closely as I can in the scriptures to try to think theologically about the practical areas of life. Now, many theologians focus on the major doctrines, you know, and uh, that is good. We need that. But pastoral care often uh, requires us to cast the light of God's word on the paths that we are walking on. And so this series really is an, a, a, an expression of that practical theological approach of trying to think theologically about the ordinary things of life, which would mean marriage, children, work, household management, finances, you know, all the rest. And so I just want to make sure that you're, if you're expecting an exegetical message, that you would uh, allow me, uh, I, I enjoy doing exegetical preaching, I, and my wife says I'm pretty good at it. But, but this is not that kind of message. This is a topical message in which we try to shine the lamps of God's word on a topic so that we're looking at it in the light of God's word. But uh, at no point do we go deep and get into all the Greek and Hebrew and, and, and so on and try to do that type of work. So let's take a look now at the marriage covenant at the heart of your household. And so this is going to be uh, beginning at Psalm 128 and verses 1 through 4 is our key passage. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children, like olive plants, all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And our key word today is marriage. And so if the children would like to make tally marks whenever they hear me say marriage, then you can count that. Marriage, marriage, marriage. There's three right there. Now, a household of strength can be a household for all seasons. And in the same way, our marriage is a marriage for all seasons. We're going to go through different seasons of life together. And our relationship will shift and change as we go through because our obligations will shift and change. But in all of it, God is both good and wise. And he has allowed for those shifts and changes to be accomplished without us uh, drifting apart. Now, the good way that we saw last week comes by walking in the old paths. We saw in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, ask for the old paths where the good way is. And marriage is one of the oldest paths of all. Okay? This is a path that begins in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time that God saw anything in his creation that was not good. 
and he immediately did something about it. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And that means that this is a, uh, a, an ideal helper, an ideal partner in life. And the, w- the way in, God, in which God accomplished that was very intimate. As he put Adam into a deep sleep, took bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and formed a woman, and then gave her to that man. And he named her, by the way, and that was the beginning, that was the first marriage in history. Now Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now you might think uh, with a topic like this and a, a beginning like this that I'm going to tell all of you that you, you need to get married. Well, there are exceptions. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 26, Paul writes, Because of the present distress... It is good for a man to remain as he is. And he goes on and says, Are you loosed from a wife? That means, are you unmarried? Are you single? Do not seek a wife. But he's referring to the present distress, which from what we know from the book of Acts and other passages in the New Testament, this was a time of violent persecution in which it was very difficult to fulfill your obligations in marriage because of the disruption of that persecution. And so, even during these times of persecution, however, marriage continued to be the norm, though I want to emphasize not a requirement for church leaders. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, we read, an overseer then, that is an elder, and he goes on and gives the same requirements for deacons. An overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, several ways to read that. One is you can't have more than one, okay? <laughs> okay? And the other is you have to have at least one. And I believe in the light of Scripture, in the light of the rest of Scripture, it is probably more the former than the latter, okay? That uh, there were many who were coming to Christ and they had more than one wife. And their early church fathers had to deal with this and be very delicate because they didn't want to leave any of these wives abandoned because the husband had come to Christ. And so you can see how complicated that got. But we do know that marriage was the default setting uh, in the early church. So the Bible is not saying that everyone should get married or that everyone can be married. There are situations in which it's not practical or even possible. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 7 and 8, we read, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. And Paul, at this time in his life, is single. Now, there is possible and maybe even probable evidence that his wife abandoned him when he became a believer in Christ. Because in order to become a, uh, a rabbi uh, in, the, in the culture of that day, marriage was required. And so what happened to his wife? She may have passed away. Or she may have left him. In the way he describes uh, husbands and wives leaving one another because of their coming to faith in Christ, he may be speaking out of his own experience. But we don't know. And so that's conjecture. But he does go on to say, but each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. 
But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, now notice it's not just to the widows, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. And again, he's referring to this current distress. Now in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 we read, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. I didn't hear that, did you? For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is very practical here. Marriage is, marriage is not for everyone. But married with children is the default setting for the vast majority of believers in the New Testament. So unless you have the necessary gift of self-control in this aspect of your life, God is telling you to take practical biblical steps to get married as soon as opportunity allows. So that's where I stand on that issue. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. If he tells you that you should get married, you had better get married, okay? It's a good thing when God says, I want you to get married, because he wouldn't command it if, unless he had somebody out there for you. So they're out there. And I'm going to try to help you find them here this morning. The good way of the old paths in God's kingdom comes to us as a package of goods. In theological terms, this is called a unity of goods. And in Psalm 112, verses 1 through 4, which is our key passage today, we read that, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Actually, this is a different passage. The other one's coming up. But this is a similar thought. It says his, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. And that's not just referring to money or to houses. It's referring to children as well. Wealth is a, child, children are a form of wealth in the New Testament. You know, they're in the same category as large flocks of cattle and sheep, okay? Lots of children was considered a, a form of wealth. And so when it refers to filling the rooms of your home with treasure, it's referring to having children. And all his, righteous in, right, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. And the psalm continues to describe the way of life of the one who fears the Lord and who delights in his commandments. He's not just grumbling and going through the motions and doing as little as possible. He's eager to walk in the light of God's word because he knows that by doing so he is doing himself and everyone he loves a favor. Notice that the goodness of God toward this man who fears the Lord is intended to flow to him, and he enjoys it when it flows to him, but it's also intended to go through him to others in, in response to their need, both in the present and on into the future and forever. One of the famous family trees in American history is that of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards' children and his children's children and his children's children's children went on to become pillars 
of our republic for hundreds of years. They continued to be a blessing to the nation. And Jonathan Edwards was a theologian. He was a pastor. He raised his children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so marriage is normally a key part of this passage. And this brings us to our key uh, psalm today. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. There it is again. Fearing the Lord, delighting his commandments, who walks in his ways. Okay, This is not just a, a feeling. This is a practice. The benefits of godliness do not just show up in the way you feel, but it shows up in the way you act, what you do. And so it says, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. If you don't labor, you will not be happy. <laughs> okay? But you will be happy if you are working hard and succeeding in your livelihood. You shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Now notice, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. There's an assumption here that this guy is married. Not only that he is married, but that he has children. Your children will be like olive plants. That means a, fruit, a source of fruitfulness all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is sometimes misunderstood. Yes, it's appropriate to, to be trembling in the presence of God. And to be afraid of annoying him or offending him or somehow uh, dishonoring him. That is all quite real. But he is our father. He's our heavenly father. He's the perfect father. And so this fear of the Lord in this passage is a deep respect and a firm confidence in the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God, such that we are eager to follow his instruction. It, it is as though you had somehow had an hour with the, the most expensive investment consultant in the world, and they, and they had you write down a few things that only this guy knows, and you are eager to run out of that office and go and put it all into practice. You're, you're not going, oh, do I have to? Do I have to get rich? You know, do I have to, to prosper? No, he's, do this and, and you're going to be glad you did. Buy low and sell high, right? So, so what we're dealing with here is a God who is giving us his instruction. We often think of his law as burdensome. It is not burdensome. It is a delight it's like when, the, when Jesus said to the man who was blind, go and wash in the fountain. He didn't go, oh, but do I have to? He was excited about what was going to happen as he went in obedience of faith to wash in the brook and he came away with his sight. So we do these things for his glory, first of all, and then for our own good. And that is why this psalm is such a, a precious blessing. So let's talk about getting married. This is my son, Brett. It's on his wedding day. Uh, he doesn't normally dress like that, but he's really excited uh, about getting married. But before we take you to the actual altar and begin to talk about marriage, I want to give a little bit of a, a 
counsel and advice to young people and to the rest of us as well. And uh, this is something we need to talk about. We need to say these things out loud once in a while. And so I'm going to say them. Beware of gazing at anything that will ruin your marriage before it even gets started. In Psalm 101, verses 2 through 4, we read, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Now I could get specific, but I won't. But I'm telling you, there are some things that if you gaze at them, you'll go blind, like the sun. You stand out there and look directly into the sun, and it will so desensitize your eyeballs that you will never be able to see again. And in a similar way, gazing at vile things will desensitize you to the point that you can never successfully participate in a healthy marriage relationship. So many teenagers, both male and female, are going to find themselves desensitized to the point where they cannot even enjoy a real person in a marriage relationship. It's so sad, but it is true. And it is going to begin to be a harvest of regret in our culture. Now secondly, I want to ask you the question, why would you want to start something before you're ready for it to succeed? It's like the, the dog chasing the car. What are you going to do if you catch it? How, what happens next? I don't know how to drive. I've got my teeth now buried in the tire. I'm going round and round and round on the pavement. Not much of a success story, is it? So you see, if you are not ready for something to succeed, don't start. Don't go to the mall and go window shopping if you have no money. And, and don't get into a relationship if you're not ready to actually commit. Why get involved with someone who is nowhere near ready to get married? Sometimes it's the guys, sometimes it's the girl, but in either case... If the relationship is one that uh, is not likely to succeed anytime soon, why start it? Why not focus on getting ready rather than window shopping with no money? If you're not both ready to get married within the next 18 months, then why get into a romantic relationship? Now, you can learn most of what you need to know to make this big decision about this person that you're potentially going to get involved with just by observing that person. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> of smarts to figure this out, right? So, a third thing. Beware of being unequally yoked together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what, has, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? I mean, you can't make it any more clear than this. Paul is warning us, don't get yoked together with somebody else who's not really compatible. Because it's not going to work. You're, you're going to find yourself uh, really struggling. So, now, an unequal yoke is marrying or entering into any partnership with someone who does not share your enthusiasm for living all of life for the glory of God. Notice I didn't say someone who just doesn't identify themselves as a Christian. There are a lot of people out there who identify, who say, I'm a Christian, but by their works they deny God. Okay, they are not enthusiastic. They're not eager to live for the glory of God. How can they be a partner with you in operating an embassy of the kingdom of God if they don't even care about the things of God? So you don't just look for somebody who claims to be a Christian or who happens to go to church. Look for somebody who loves God more than you do and try to beat them (laughs) by loving God even more yourself. So how can you meet your, your match? What's, what's the strategy for finding the right person for you in order to get married? Well, here's what I recommend. Hey, would you hand me that brick? Sure. Here you go. Thanks. And now you've met your match. Now, how does this happen? It happens when you are willing to be the kind of person you want to attract. When you are doing the kinds of things you would hope that that future life's partner is already doing with their time and their money. You want to be able to volunteer to go build that clinic out in the middle of a jungle somewhere. Not because you want to meet guys or girls, because you want to build a clinic. You're there to build the clinic. And it's hard. And you're sweaty. And you're not pretty. And you're not handsome. You're not looking great. You know, this is not a a singles bar situation. But you ask somebody to hand you a brick. And their hand comes into the picture. And your hand reaches out. And you look up into one another's eyes. And the music begins to play in the background, right? That's how you meet your match. Be the kind of person you want to attract. And you go and do the kinds of things you would hope that they were doing. And there's a very good chance you'll see them and you'll meet them. And it will be exciting. Now, let's talk about dating versus courtship. A lot of controversy over this. But it's really quite simple. Courtship is normally done in one another's home in the presence of other family members. It's not all about getting somebody's permission and going through all of this and acting like you're already engaged before you even go out together. Right? That's not what we're talking. We're talking about you meet somebody that you think is interesting. You, they may just be a friend but you invite them over, you know, to play chess or 
a board game or, or to have ice cream or, you know, to just be there with you and your family. And they get to observe you and you get to, to introduce yourself to them in the context of who you are and where you live. Now, dating is normally done away from one another's home in isolation from other family members. And that means that you really don't have any reality check as to who this person really is. And so the history of dating is, is basically the transition from the front porch of the family home to the back seat of some guy's car. And that is, his, that is dating's history. In fact, there's a book by that title, From Front Porch to Back Seat. <laughs> and it's a, it's a secular study of the change in culture with the advent of the automobile in relationships between guys and girls. So you don't really know someone until you see how they get along with those who already know them. Dating can be like watching a tiger through the bars at the zoo. The tiger seems tame, but you need to be able to watch how it interacts with others in the jungle. Now this is a beautiful cat. I mean, this is the ultimate cool cat, right? And uh, it'd be very, very enticing for some young lady to say, boy, that's the guy for me, or or the gal for me, right? But uh, courtship is different. Courtship is like watching a sheepdog on the farm. It seems pretty boring when you think about it. But you watch how it herds the flock, and, and you, you become impressed. Whoa, this, 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 this guy's got some real intelligence. He's sharp, he's fast, he's, he loves these sheep. He's, man, it's a lot more impressive. So in order for love and respect for one another to have a solid basis in reality, you'd be wise to get to know one another Not entirely, but primarily in the context of one another's normal family and friends' activities. Because it can get pretty, pretty bad. Uh, Let's be honest. Seduction and date rape are real. They're real dangers. You read the news on college campuses across the country, you find this is a serious problem. But even worse than that would be living with the other party's repeated unfaithfulness in an unequal yoke marriage. I'm trying to spare you harm. Don't go for the cool cat. Go for the boring sheepdog. Okay? He's not that boring, by the way. Not once you get to know him. A competent sheepdog kind of guy or gal who displays godly moral character and competence in their family will make a far better husband or wife than the cool, edgy guy or gal with the moral character of an unbeliever and the commitment level of an alley cat. So, choose wisely. Now, When we think of marriage, we often think of happily ever after, right? This is Brett and Anna in their their marriage together as newlyweds. But you never know what is coming. And so you need to think in terms of, is this person going to be there for me when I need them? Not just when I'm fun. Not just when I'm pretty. This is the 
care page for Anna after she fell ill from Lyme disease. And as you can see here in this smaller picture inset, Brett is her primary caregiver, taking blood samples and administering medicine and helping her as she is near death. This beautiful professional ballerina is now laying in a bed, and this goes on for nearly seven years. She's recovered now. She is now back to dancing. She's, she's beautiful and wonderful again. She's like she was the day they got married. But it's a long haul to get there. And this is what marriage is all about. It's not just the fun stuff. It's also the hard stuff together. So God has three basic principles, or purposes rather, for marriage. This is Alex and Brett, uh, or Alex and Courtney. I'm so used to saying Brett. This is Alex and Courtney Harris as newlyweds. And so the first purpose of marriage, according to God's word, is companionship. Your spouse is intended to be your closest and dearest friend in Christ. It is God who made the observation that it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so don't lose that. You know, it's easy. When you're married for a few years, you start, the wife focuses on the kids and the husband focuses on making a living. And the result is the friendship begins to evaporate. And you want to cultivate that. You know, I have a monthly anniversary celebration with my wife. Every 28th of the month, we try to go out together and do something as though it was our annual anniversary. Try to cultivate, not just the romance, but the, the friendship. The second purpose of your marriage is for the sake of morality. Your intimacy is intended to protect both you and your spouse from sexual sin. Now, God solves the issue of sexual passion by giving, giving each partner to the other as a matter of bodily ownership. Now, this is one of those passages that is so practical and so clear, it's almost embarrassing. So I'm going to have you read it with me here. Nevertheless, Paul writes, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's very practical here. Now, I want to point out here that the proper way, as Paul is writing here, to understand the relationship between you and your spouse is that body belongs to you. Whichever way you're pointing, between the two of you. And so you're expected to enjoy one another and to not deprive one another of access to what belongs to them. That's the attitude to have. It's a really good attitude to have because it says, 
I am here for you to enjoy. And you are here for me to enjoy. And we need to negotiate what enjoy means, what it looks like, what it feels like. And that's the adventure of this intimacy in marriage. And we should go into our marriage understanding that that is the case. You see, when a person is aroused, their mind begins to take sides against... Let's just put it this way. When you're aroused and it's not a situation where you can give in to that arousal, you need to run like Joseph ran because your mind will betray you and tell you this is okay. God has given us marriage in order to have a safe place to go crazy. And that's what it is, a safe place to just love one another with an abandonment. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it's written, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. That means enjoy yourselves in that marriage bed. But beware, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Outside of marriage, that behavior would be wrong. Inside of marriage, if you enjoy being with one another in that way, God has no issue with it. It is intended to be a place, a safe place, for you to enjoy what is now yours by marriage vow. And if you're having any trouble in this area, I encourage you to meditate on this passage and then be an obedient, walk in the obedience of faith in regard to your spouse. So many times in marriage counseling, this issue comes up and it often has to do with a misunderstanding or a rejection of the truth that you have given yourself to this other person in a vow given before God and before the public. So, Paul is so practical in this area, I am about to blush. Okay, now let's go on to the next reason for marriage. Procreation. Notice this baby in the view. That's Audrey. Now, procreation is, your union is intended to produce offspring. It won't always produce offspring. It doesn't necessarily produce offspring. But all things being equal, God did a pretty good job and it works really well. And the, good, and the odds are that if you continue to love one another as he intended, children will begin to show up. And when they do, it's a time for rejoicing. Because this is part of the unity of goods that God has established uh, as he provides. He, he doesn't just give us onesies and twosies. He gives us a package deal. And the package often includes a lot of children. Now, when we separate the goods that God has provided from his purpose for those goods, the purpose for which he has provided those goods, they become harmful and evil. I mean, it's obvious. Food is intended to deliver nutrition. That's his primary purpose. But because God is good, he also allows good food to taste good. If we get so obsessed with how good it tastes that we ignore the fact it's intended to deliver nutrition we can end up in the hospital really fast because we can start gouging, gorging ourselves on junk food that doesn't deliver the goods. It doesn't deliver the nutrition. So don't separate the pleasures of God from the purposes that God has for those pleasures, which is to draw... The reason food tastes good is to draw you to the dinner table. 
The reason that, that uh, things are beautiful is in order to attract us to them. We are intended to participate in a way that glorifies God and displays his goodness and wisdom in each moment. So we are wise to embrace all of God's package. Now, let's take a look at our wedding vows. Your marriage vows should guide you through every season of life. It would, not, it would be wise to occasionally reread your marriage vows. And so let's take a look at what the groom has promised in his vows. I, in this case Alex, take you, Courtney, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, comfort, and cherish you, and forsaking all others to keep myself only unto you as long as we both shall live. That's a promise that's been made before God and before all these witnesses. Now, there is a, sm a slight difference in the bride's vows, in the traditional wedding vows, so here's what we see. I, Courtney, take you, Alex, to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, comfort, and respect you, and forsaking all others to keep myself only unto you as long as we both shall live. Now, if you go back into a little bit of history, you find that this phrase, respect you, was originally obey you. Now, that became a little politically incorrect. And so we've kind of said, well, you know, the biblical phrase is respect your husband. So we'll go with that. We could have put in there, submit to you. Well, that might have been a little radioactive too, right? But the point is that a marriage is based upon these two vows. A lot of things kick in when the vows are made. This is why living together is not good. This, is, this relationship between a husband and his wife is special before God. Blessings flow to it and through it to others. And so we come now to what I call the strong meat of God's word on the subject of marriage. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 we read, For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, the difference between milk and meat is that one is easy to swallow and easy to digest. And the other is more difficult to swallow and more difficult to digest. And so there's a certain maturity level. You don't give strong meat to an infant and you normally don't give milk to a full-grown man because they have the ability to digest and to enjoy the benefits of the stronger meat. So we're dealing here with doctrine and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that there are some 
teachings that are strong meat. In other words, this is going to be a little hard to swallow. But you'll be wise to chew on it rather than to avoid it or reject it. The difference between the two is clear. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, the classic passages on the subject of marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, as I said, this is strong meat, especially in an age of feminism and women's rights and egalitarian marriage. It, it, it is definitely going against the grain. It is, it is stroking the cat in the wrong direction. But this aspect of God's word to men and women has been so distorted by what some mistakenly think that it means that it requires some careful clarification. God is not endorsing chauvinism. He's not endorsing the kind of uh, uh, attitude that would treat a wife or women in general as objects uh, to just be oogled and you know, taken advantage of, exploited. You know, this... You know, a lot of people have issues with the word patriarchy, but patriarchy has probably done the world a huge amount of good, more than anything else I can think of. But we, we tend to all throw it all, the, in the sense, the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of bathwater in regard to this doctrine, but that doesn't mean the doctrine itself is wrong. So let's take a look. Wives are to submit to being cherished, okay? Submit to your husband as he cherishes you. And they're cherishing for the purpose of fulfilling God's purposes in the household. Remember, this whole thing is about managing a household for the glory of God. It's about living as an embassy of the kingdom of God. It's about being a a facility that facilitates adventures that are important to God. And so he's inviting husbands and wives to join together in a partnership to accomplish those purposes. So husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for her. So husbands are to lay their lives down in service to their wives. Now, I want to point out an important detail here. When Christ died on the cross, he was not blowing kisses. He was paying bills. Think of that. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Beware of thinking that giving himself for her is is just hugs and kisses. It's not. It's showing up, doing what it takes to pay her bills. That's practical. Ephesians 5.28 So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. 
for we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul could have just as easily repeated the word love there. He could have said, and that she loves her husband. But God gives different instruction to each one because he knows what they need. God has assigned men and women to play complementarian roles. And now for the ladies, an illustration that I'm sure you will appreciate. It's like a football game. The quarterback has a strong passing arm, and the wide receiver has great hands for catching the ball. Together they can win the Super Bowl. If they switch positions, they both lose. See? Now is that not a wonderful women's illustration to my point? No, that's a guy's illustration. But it is dealing with a a very practical issue. There are things that women can do that men cannot do, like have babies, like nurse babies, nurturing children, all the rest. Now, I am not going to say that cleaning the house is a woman's (laughs) innate gift. But in most cultures around the world, there is a division of labor in which the husband and the wife work together as a team. And sometimes, many times, her work is not compensated in the marketplace, but it is of huge value in keeping costs down and helping to run the household well. That's why Paul tells women to be keepers at home. That's why he says the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children and to be keepers in the home. So it is biblical But I believe that we can allow for our modern era to provide some great pleasure, some great benefits to women, but not at the expense of this underlying commitment in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, we read, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, that's Jesus, who is the head, into Christ. So what is biblical headship? What does this mean? Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 2.10, the head of all rule and authority. That's Christ. Now we can read these passages and, and we have no difficulty because we're dealing with Christ. Holding fast to the head from whom The whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So far, no problem, right? We're dealing with the headship of Christ. But headship is the authority that comes from being responsible. The physical head of a physical body is that part through which nourishment, protection, and a sense of purpose are going to flow. It's the, the design of it. Remember, we're talking about one physical body now. And it has a head from the neck up. And it has a body from the neck down. Are we clear on that? So, 
a biblical marriage is going to be complementarian in the sense that the husband and the wife have been assigned different roles in their marriage that complement one another by providing what, by God's good design, the other does not have. The purpose in marriage is not fulfilled by either one apart from the other. The head needs the body and the body needs the head. And the functions in these different parts of the whole human being are fulfilled by the relationship between the two. Because God is good, all of his commands to men and women are a delivery system for benefits that he wants us to enjoy and protections from harm that he wants us to avoid. If we can get that straight, then we are no longer going to struggle with God's word on this topic because we know he's doing us a favor. God's different commandments to husbands and wives reveal the different needs and abilities that each one has to offer toward fulfilling the purpose of marriage and family and household. So what does biblical headship have to do with the relationship between a husband and his wife? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So men are in relationship to Christ, and he is our head. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So whatever's going on here with this issue of being the head of something, it's not a demeaning situation because Christ has God as his head, right? And men have Christ as their head. But in Ephesians 5 and 23, we read that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of of the church. And the clue as to what Paul has in mind shows up in this next phrase the church, his body. He's the head from the neck up, the church is the body from the neck down, and is himself his sa- its savior. The head is saving the body. Saving the body from what? All kinds of harm. All kinds of harm. Every husband is the head of his own wife by marriage vow. Men are not the head of women in general. Men are not better than women in general. Men are only the head of one woman, and that's their wife if they are married. And they have a responsibility to play in order to nurture and cherish her, to protect her from harm, and to lead her in fulfilling their shared purpose in life together, which they have agreed upon when they made their wedding vows. This is the meat, okay? This is the meat of God's word. So what does biblical headship have to do? The doctrines honor women in their roles as wives and mothers. And so, let's talk about a head. Now, imagine a situation where we've got a teenager He goes to the kitchen. He opens the refrigerator. He sees uh, a carton of milk there. And he he asks, uh, Mom, is is this milk still good? And she says, You know, I'm not sure. It may be expired. So his ears had a chance to avoid this disaster. Right? Now, so then... He opens the, he looks into the carton and kind of swishes it around. It's a little thick. 
His eyes have given him an opportunity to avoid this disaster. But no, he's a teenager. He lifts it to his nose and he sniffs on it. And it does smell a little funny. But he's a teenager. And so guess what's going to happen? Glug, 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 glug. It tastes terrible. But who do you think has to deal with the, the wonderful feelings now that come over you when you get food poisoning? The whole body. The whole body is going to suffer because this kid didn't use his head. Okay? And I'm not just talking about his brain. I'm talking about his ears, his eyes, his nose, his sense of taste. It was all there to protect the body from getting food poisoning, but he ignored all of that and let it go down his throat anyway. And that is the way a lot of men live with their wives. They are not using their head to love their wives. They're not allowing the wife to be protected from harm by making everything have to pass by her husband before it gets to her. This is why salesmen like to show up during the day when the husband's not at home. (laughs) They know how to push your buttons. They'll they'll tell you your husband's going to love this. He'll be so happy you bought this. And we'll give you a six-year contract on it, you know. And we have our lawyers standing ready to fight it, to keep it in place. So what is submission? Submission is found in God's word pretty much everywhere. 1 Corinthians 16, 16, you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. That's the people who are serving in the church. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be in submission to one another and be clothed with humility. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or to his, uh, his uh, magistrates. So submission is simply coming under the authority of another person in order to support them in completing their God-given mission. That's what submission is all about. You can see it in the word itself. Sub, meaning coming under, and mission, getting something done. So submission is to come under somebody in order to support the mission. So Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You have this relationship by vow. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is asking you to come under the support, under the, the authority of your husband and helping him fulfill his mission. So husbands, don't waste your wife's life by failing to have a godly mission worthy of her to support. She wants to support your mission, not just cater to your creature comforts, although that's nice. I enjoy that. But if those creature comforts become an obstacle to me fulfilling my mission under my head, which is Christ, because he is under his head, which is God, 
We are all in this together. And so submission is not a dirty word. It's not something to be liberated from. This meat of God's word may be hard to swallow, but it is still true. And it offers great benefit to those who trust God enough to obey him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us the gift of marriage. That you've given it not just to us, but you've given it to Christ. Because we are his eternal bride. And so Lord, we ask you to open our eyes and help us, Lord, to be what you intended us to be, what we promised to be in our wedding vows. And I pray for all of those, Lord, who are single yet to be married, that you would bring them into that place and time where they meet their match and enter into a godly, biblical, fruitful marriage that will last for a lifetime. And we give you all the praise and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.